Rents have outpaced inflation basically every year for almost 15 years now. And, and so, you know, with the growth of rents, we have many more households that are constrained in terms of their monthly income going towards rent. And the benefit of buying even at a high interest rate right now is that it fixes your housing costs uh, in terms of the principal and the interest components that you're paying in a given year. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of Wharton faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. If you're feeling hesitant about buying a home right now, you're in good company. According to the Fannie Mae Home Purchase Sentiment Index, 82% of consumers have put their home buying plans on hold. So what's holding everyone back? Is it a housing market crash looming on the horizon? And should you wait for this potential market crash? And if a crash does occur, will it look anything like the 2008 crisis? We'll be exploring these questions in depth in just a moment. But before we tackle these broader concerns, let's focus on some specific developments that are shaping the housing sector as we speak. Well, we know that the housing sector is going through some important pivots at this moment. It's dealing with low supply, a wave of refinancing on mortgages from a couple of years ago that have changed the market, and the need to come up with new options, new ideas to spur home sales. One recently announced was the decision by Zillow to provide the potential of a 1% down mortgage program for potential buyers. So what does this all mean for the sector right now? Pleasure to be joined by Ben Keyes, Professor of Real Estate here at the Wharton School. Hi, Ben. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. So let me start with the Zillow announcement. And, and should we be surprised? And what kind of impact might we see from this type of a program? It is interesting because it's the potential of 1% down, but also Zillow potentially contributing to the down payment as well. Yeah, it's an interesting business idea for, for Zillow to wade into this area and offer this type of subsidy for borrowers. I think this is reflecting a number of challenges in the housing market right now. But maybe the biggest one from Zillow's perspective is that it's a volume-based business. And you know, Zillow's mortgage revenue is down about 17% year over year. And the visits to Zillow's apps and websites have, are also down about 8% year over year. And so as we think about what's, what these rate hikes are, the effect that the rate hikes are having on the housing market, the most obvious and dramatic one is, uh, is on volume, the number of transactions that are occurring. And Zillow is fundamentally a, a volume-based business. And so they're looking for innovative solutions uh, to increase some of that volume. And I, I think of this down payment program as one potential direction for them to innovate. So I guess the other question I have is, you know, we're not that far out. I mean, a little bit more than a decade from the housing crisis, uh, which the marker of that was all of the 0% down mortgages that occurred. I mean, we're talking about going from zero to one potentially with this program. So is the sector is kind of the housing base strong enough at this point from where we were back in 2008 to handle this type of a program. Yeah, I think it's natural to feel some of the same echoes of the the risky loans that we saw in the mid-2000s that were encouraging people to take on large amounts of debt that they couldn't ultimately manage. And those kind of loans had a number of characteristics. In addition to just low down payments, they often had 
teaser rates where the interest rate would jump after a couple of years or negatively amortizing loans where the loan balance would actually increase uh, over time. Th- this is just one margin uh, along which we're seeing this innovation to this point. I-, I think it'll be interesting to see if we see innovations on the other constraints on households. If you look at the overall market right now, you know the, the sort of 20% down payment for a house is actually a myth. And, and actually, the, the median down payment is about 7% right now in the housing market. So loan-to-value ratio of about 93% is, is the median. And this is because the FHA offers a 3.5% down program already. And Fannie and Freddie, in trying to compete, um, although these are, again, sort of federal entities all competing with each other, they're offering a 5% down program uh, for, for Fannie and Freddie loans. And so you know, moving the needle from 5% to 3.5% to, to 1% certainly reduces that down payment constraint for households, but it doesn't relax some of the other constraints that might be more binding for households at the moment. So you mentioned the word innovation, and, and obviously I think that becomes important in the scope of a lot of different business sectors. How then does innovation potentially factor in and, and what kind of level of importance does it have, do you think, for housing as it tries to kind of build a lot of these elements back up, build up the supply, kind of loosen up the refi market and 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 try and spur the level of growth, even with these high, high home prices we still see. Well, I think we're going to see a lot of scrambling uh, on the part of mortgage lenders, brokers, realtors to try to find some ways to juice volume from its incredible low point. And this is the challenge. The housing market is in a deep freeze because interest rates have risen so quickly. And the, the rising rates have reduced uh, demand uh, as buyers are going to be facing much larger monthly payments, and it's sharply reduced inventory. So few people want to sell their homes. They're happy to stay put where they are right now with their interest rates locked in at 3% or even lower. And, and so we're going to see a lot of interesting uh, efforts, I think. Uh, and the question is whether any of those efforts are going to really move the needle on the deep freeze or not. We also have a, a housing market which I don't think people fully appreciate. You know, we nationalized the mortgage market between Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the FHA. Those three entities dominate the the types of mortgages that are issued, the flavor of the mortgages that are issued. They're almost all thirty year fixed rate mortgages, and they dominate the underwriting standards. And so, credit scores are much higher than they were in the in the early two thousands for the average home borrower at the moment. And so, I think when we're thinking about the, this question of innovation. We're, we're thinking about, you know, sort of chiseling away at a giant iceberg uh, that is the, the housing market right now. And, and right now, these feel like a very small chisel to me. And, and it'll be interesting to see whether there's more ambition coming forward. But when you think of the term innovation, is the housing sector one that has been innovative in general? I mean, when you think about the process, it's been fairly similar decade after decade after decade, it seems like. Yeah, the, the, the innovation process in the housing market is extremely slow. And if you think about the different margins along which you could innovate, you know, mortgage contract design is one where there's been a lot of discussion. And I think in the aftermath of the foreclosure crisis, in particular, there was a lot of concern among policymakers and academics. You know, could we design a better mortgage contract um, that helped people on the downside um, and avoided those kinds of costly foreclosure sales? And I think we're seeing sort of the effects of of better policy. And this is one of the consequences of that better policy. So we didn't have a foreclosure crisis during COVID. And that was very much because 
of policy choices made by state, federal, state and federal entities. We gave people forbearance. We allowed people to stay in their homes. We prevented evictions from occurring. Um, and we supported people with a lot of fiscal support. And all of those things prevented that big disruption to the housing market. And the consequence of doing so is that now a lot of people are, are staying in place. Um, and, and so I think there is kind of a, a trade-off there. And so, yeah, you know, I would actually say that the, the way in which we helped people during COVID was the big policy innovation in the housing market. Um, and now we have a new set of problems and, and we'll need to think of new ways to innovate. So what are some of the ideas that potentially are out there right now when you think about taking the housing sector from where it is at the moment to building it out over the next maybe decade or two? Well, I think first we have to diagnose what the problem is. And this program by Zillow is is really about increasing demand. It's about increasing home buyer demand. If home buyers who struggle to save up uh, you know, for a large enough down payment, this program is going to help them out. The, the problem in the housing market right now isn't just demand. It's not a simple story of, you know, no one wants to buy. That's clearly not the story because inventory is so staggeringly low. And let me give you just a couple of numbers on the state of inventory in the housing market. In the New York metro area, it, at this time in 2016, there were about 70,000 active listings. This month, there are only 32,000. Um, in Baltimore, there were 13,000 listings. This month, only 3,500. So the number of homes for sale is far, far suppressed relative to where it was. And what we're learning is that interest rate hikes seem to be affecting inventories even more than they're affecting demand. And that's partly a function of demographics, partly a function of the kinds of options that different folks have. And so going forward, kind of tying back around to your question, you know, going forward and thinking about uh, what are we going to see in the way of innovation uh, in the coming years, first, we need to understand the problem. And if the problem is inventory, then it's one about how do we encourage more construction? How do we get more units built and made available for sale? And then on top of that, it's how do we get people to re-optimize, to shift out of a house that they may feel locked in uh, with these low interest rates that they've locked in? And how do we get them to move? And that's a much trickier knot to untie. So it, when you talk about the factor of, of the home builders, uh, don't you also have to factor in not only the numbers of houses that are being built, but the types of properties that are being built? I, I mean, we see a lot of properties that are the four and five bedroom house that are built for you know five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars, and you see a lot of multifamily properties, the townhomes, the apartments, etc. But have we kind of placed out of the market the single family? $200,000 or $250,000 three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house in this marketplace right now? Oh, for sure. The starter homes that we've seen uh, built in the past uh, are just not being built uh, in the way that they used to be built. And so you know, we are in the midst of a, of a bit of a construction boom, and I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic in, in hearing from the home builders, especially this quarter. Um, the home builders have, uh, in, their, uh, in their commentary, um, said that they are looking to uh, acquire more land and to to build more units, but I think you're right that it's it's very uneven, and the housing market has never been one size fits all. But it feels that much more idiosyncratic at the moment. You have certain parts of the country, um, like I was referring to um, to the East Coast markets of New York and Baltimore, where inventory is extremely low. In some other markets, you're seeing a, a boom in inventory. New Orleans, for example, has inventory levels that have 
skyrocketed back up to their 2016 levels, and we're seeing price softening occurring there. And so I think you know one of the challenges is is, is sort of for policymakers is thinking about you know what are some of the policies where we can uh, relax the constraints in the places that need it. And I think the challenge there is you say, okay, well we're going to you know subsidize the home builders. Where will they go? They're going to go to some open tract in Texas where it's easy to acquire land. It's e- easy to zone the land um, and and it's easy to throw up housing and they're not going to go, um, you know, into into some of these cities in the northeast that are much more dense. There's not a lot of land available uh, where the zoning is is much tighter. And so I think that's one of the tensions that the housing market is facing right now is that if you have a sort of oversimplified solution to our housing supply crisis, it's going to be applied to the wrong markets. How do you think also the, the dynamic of the online entity like Zillow and, and other entities out there have the opportunity to really kind of shape what the, the, the industry is going to look like over the next couple of decades? Yeah, well, the, the industry has certainly shifted to having a much stronger online presence. As we've said before, you know, housing markets move slowly. Um, they're extremely durable assets. Um, and they use a lot of antiquated systems uh, in uh, in the way in which transactions occur. I think the way in which we're seeing a rise of fintech uh, mortgage lenders, we're seeing more innovation on the mortgage underwriting through through some of the fintech tools. Um, we're seeing more certainly in terms of the way people shop for houses, shopping online, or in in some cases during COVID, not even visiting the property before making an offer. So I think we're definitely seeing some action. There, I, I think, again, it comes back to the size and scale of the U.S. housing market. The market is enormous. And thinking about a lot of these fintech players, right now they're carving off relatively small slices of a giant market. It's extremely profitable to do that. You can run a great business doing so, but it doesn't shift the, the overall tenor of the market. And I think one of the myths that we're hearing going around right now about you know, the role of um, you know, a few large institutional buyers uh, sort of steering the the overall U.S. housing market in one d- direction or another, they're just not big enough players to have that kind of impact. And so, you know, they may have an impact on on a subset of neighborhoods. Certainly, you know, the suburbs around Phoenix or the suburbs around At- uh, Atlanta may have had um, some pretty big effects from uh, you know the push towards single family rentals, for instance. Um, but I think at a national scale, they're just not there um, at the moment, and they might never get to that scale because of how big the market is. Well, and that component of the rental house market, which, uh, you know, has kind of, I think has kind of fluctuated in terms of the want by the consumer over the course of time. Obviously, in, in the last couple of years, it's, it has grown because of the dynamics we've seen at play. Uh, is it beneficial longer term to see that fluctuation on the rental component of a single family home in terms of being an available component there if somebody needs it? but also allowing them with these programs like Zillow and others with the low down payment option to have them have the ability to be able to get in and own that property and have that equity in their in their kind of their hip pocket. Yeah, I think this was exactly what people expected to happen coming out of the financial crisis uh, of 2008. After the wave of foreclosures that we saw, a lot of these properties were scooped up uh, to become single family rentals. And there was an expectation that that just wouldn't last, that, that, that eventually those portfolios would be wound down by selling those homes to owner-occupied residents. So you'd see a, a rebound of home ownership. Um, we haven't gotten back to those levels of home ownership rates where we were um, at the peak in 2005 or 2006. We're still 
well below that point. So many more renters than homeowners uh, at the moment. And a lot of those folks are in these single family rental units. I think it's an open question whether that's a function of preferences or or constraints. I think it does add some flexibility and it it does lower some of the costs for for households that don't need to worry about some of the associated risks of, of home ownership. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't give them a potential tool for for wealth building um, or an asset to borrow against um, or potentially uh, you know um, another sort of way in which they can um, build a, a deeper sense of community um, as a homeowner. So I think all of those things um, point to some of the trade-offs as we see um, is certain communities becoming much more renter-oriented rather than owner-oriented. So by having these types of programs that we've kind of mentioned here with the lower down payment element, uh, you're obviously shortening up that window uh, that the, potent- the, the that the buyer is thinking about in terms of getting that down payment for them. Does it also potentially have an impact down the road in terms of that person for that second house, like that next step? They 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 do this on the first house, but it, the benefit financially helps them down the road as well. That's a great question. It depends on what the path of house price appreciation looks like and how quickly they're able to build up equity in the home. So if they're getting in at the right time, and this is a time where prices are going to you know continue to rise then they're going to see their equity build much faster than if they had to wait a few years to get into the market. So it becomes really a market timing story for that next asset. You know, Right now, Zillow has only rolled out this program in, in parts of Arizona. Um, so it's still small potatoes at a national scale. And I think you know, that's a market where you, know, you wouldn't necessarily expect prices to be on, on a sharp upward trajectory in coming years because there is a lot of new supply coming online. So houses are still being built um, in those areas, and uh, you know, I wouldn't expect that this would be the, a sort of a path to to great, uh, you know, great dynastic wealth over getting in, you know, a couple a couple years earlier than you otherwise would. But for some households, that could make quite a difference. Well, and it also made me wonder, as you were saying that, whether or not, at least right now, with them trying this in Arizona, if whether or not this may end up being somewhat of a market specific idea that would work in lower home priced marketplaces rather than, as you said, the New York's, uh, the DC area here in Philadelphia, uh, up in, the, in New England, in, in Boston as well. Yeah. I mean, we think of those as the high priced markets where there are more people constrained, but in every market in the country, there are renters who would love to buy right now. And one of the themes that we haven't brought up is you know, just how much more expensive it's become to be a renter in the United States since 2010. Rents have outpaced inflation basically every year uh, for almost 15 years now. And, and so, you know, with the growth of rents, we have many more households that are constrained in terms of their monthly income going towards rent. And the benefit of buying even at a high interest rate right now is that it fixes your housing costs uh, in terms of the principal and the interest components that you're paying in a given year. So there's still a pool of renters that are out there uh, who would love to own. And I think in those markets, the sort of... Um, lower priced uh, markets, we, we may still see a group of people who would really benefit from relaxing this down payment constraint. I think they will still face challenges related to their credit scores and their debt to income ratios, whether they can make the monthly payments each month. But realistically, we're still looking like a process that's going to take a few years for a lot of this to play out, uh, partly because just on the purchase side of it, we've got mortgage rates that are above 7%. I think the expectation is they're not going to come down significantly uh, in the next year or two. 
Uh, and then you have that dynamic of supply that obviously is, it, it, you can't fix that overnight as well. That's exactly right. I still think we're in the early phase of, of a deep freeze uh, of the housing market. There's so many homeowners who are sitting on 3% mortgages or below, and that's a big financial friction if you want to give up that mortgage and move somewhere else. Um, so I think that's going to have a big impact. Mortgage applications are down, uh, basically cut in half since 2021 um, due to the effect of of rate hikes. And so I, I think the market is going to uh, struggle along for some time uh, as it gradually works its way through these large financial frictions um, that we haven't seen in the housing market in a long, long time. Ben, always great to get your insight on all of this. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Ben Keyes, uh, real estate professor here at the Wharton School. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School.